Greetings, and welcome back to Priming, where we find simple techniques to address modern problems for our primitive bodies. My name is Andrew Pafford, and I'm a health and wellness professional with over a decade of experience helping Olympic-level athletes, desk jockeys, and seniors achieving their goals and improving their quality of life. In today's episode, we'll be talking about gut health, and more specifically, the gut microbiota. What we know about their role in the human body, how our lifestyle choices affect the gut microbiome, and what the ramifications of those changes may be. As a reminder, our purpose with Primity is to distill scientific findings into easily approachable strategies and techniques to improve our health and wellness. So let's set the stage about what we already know. Our bodies have microorganisms all throughout, about 39 trillion as a matter of fact. One could even make the argument that there's more of them than us. So are we more them than us? Another philosophical argument for another time. But suffice to say, with overwhelming numbers, it would be hard to believe if they didn't have an effect on us. And as it turns out, they indeed do. Today, we want to focus on the bacteria inside of our bodies. More specifically, the bacteria that live in our gastrointestinal tracts. While bacteria in our skin can be influenced easily by our hygiene habits, such as hand washing and soap and shampoo, altering bacteria in our guts is not as straightforward since that typically requires ingestion of a substance, i.e. food and drink, or quite possibly consuming nothing at all. Additionally, what are the possible consequences of these alterations? While this field is constantly evolving, we currently know that the bacteria in our gut play a role in nutrient metabolism, how we metabolize drugs, antimicrobial protection, immunomodulation, affects our gut barrier, and more. So what does this have to do with our culture, or more appropriately, our choices that are affected by our culture? If we were to live in an underdeveloped part of the world, we would not have the option of choosing processed foods. In America, there are areas known as food deserts, where people can only find processed foods. So how do processed foods and non-processed foods affect our gut microbiota? Well, we'll turn our attention to a study called Gut Microbiota Differences According to Ultra-Processed Food Consumption in a Spanish Population by Mena Cueva Sierra and others. In it, they studied 359 individuals and were categorized by sex and the amount of ultra-processed foods they ate. For this study, they defined ultra-processed food as, and I quote, UPFs are formulations ready for consumption made from refined food substances such as glucose syrup, modified starch, maltodextrins, hydrogenated oils, protein fiber, isolates, or cosmetic additives, with a careful combination of simple sugars, salt, fat, and various additives. These foods include sugar-sweetened beverages, snacks, industrially processed pastries, meat and dairy products, and, quote, fast food, among others, end quote. So that, while a little wordy, should paint a pretty clear picture of what foods we're talking about when we say UPF, or ultra-processed foods. What they discovered was individuals who had five servings or more a day of UPFs had higher values of total energy intake, BMI, weight, waist and hip circumference, fat mass, and triglycerides. And really, there's no surprise there. We've already harped about how fast foods are do terrible things to the human body. But in regards to the gut flora, today's episode, a number of discoveries were made. The diversity of bacteria within a sample, also known as the alpha diversity, for those of you bioaficionados, was significantly lower in men who consumed five or more UPFs a day. Translation, the diversity of microbes in one's gut diminished 
with the increased consumption of UPFs. So less diversity in this particular instance is not a good thing. So there's fewer types of different bacteria floating around in your gut. Further, while some populations of the bacteria went down with the increased UPFs, hence less diversity, something has to go away, other populations went up. Naturally, to help with breaking down the food one is accustomed to eating, the bacteria that you need live on that food. So if you only eat that type of food, it's natural that those bacteria flourish because that food is their food too. However, the bacteria that were increased by eating the UPFs are known to have connections to negative effects. I'm going to throw out some specific examples. Parabacteroids became overrepresented and have been negatively correlated with memory task performance. Enterobacterials also were among the populations increased, and those are known to be strongly related to dysbiosis, gut inflammation, and even the development of IBD. So certainly these are not the friendly microbiota that we want to flourish in our guts. This is also one study that looks specifically at the relationship between UPFs and microbiota. Let's not forget that the direct impact of UPFs on the body's own tissues and their relationship with gut flora. So in this study, dietary emulsifiers impact the mouse gut microbiota, promoting colitis and metabolic syndrome by Benoit, Chessing, and others. Probably butchered that pronunciation, I apologize, but link to the show notes. They studied the effects of emulsifiers on mice. To better understand this, I'm going to provide two pieces of prerequisite information. First, emulsifiers are chemicals that allow, quote, emissible ingredients to mix. A classic example of emissibility is oil and water. If you pour oil on water, all the oil will sit on top. If you shake it up, it might momentarily mix, but within moments, all the oil will float back to the surface. They do not like mixing, hence emissible. Emulsifiers allow these types of fluids or these types of ingredients to combine and stay that way. Just about no shaking required. Second piece of information we need to know is on mucus. While our typical interaction with mucus is when we are sick and are desperately trying to expel it from our bodies so that we can breathe again, it is actually a crucial barrier inside of our sinuses, lungs, throat, and GI tract. It's what prevents a lot of bacteria from latching on to us and attacking our tissues and making us sick. That's why we expel all that mucus. As when we're sick, we increase mucus production, bacteria gets trapped in it, and we're trying to get that bacteria out of our bodies. Additionally, why do we tend to get sick so much more during the winter seasons? Because the cold thins our mucosal linings, making it easier for the nasty germies to get through it and to our membranes where they can do damage. So you can think of it this way. If skin is our first line of defense on the outside, mucus effectively performs that similar immune function on the inside, albeit a different manner of mechanism. So, Armed with those two pieces of information, let's return to the mice. A group of mice were administered emulsifiers via drinking water of 1% weight per volume. So if you have 99% water, only 1% of that is emulsifier. Mind you, soda and the foods that we eat use much more than 1%. So the mice were given this mixture for 12 weeks daily. In normal mice, it was measured that a baseline mouse had gut bacteria that resided in the mucus approximately 25 micrometers away from the epithelial lining, 
which is the actual lining of your gut. Mucus is not really you, it's just a secretion. So the epithelial lining is the true wall of your gut. So the bacteria resided about 25 micrometers away from the lining in the mucus, and there were no bacterial stragglers observed within 10 micrometers of the lining. So you can think of that as like a no man's land. There was no bacteria seen within 10 micrometers of the lining. So you had a nice empty space where no bacteria were touching your wall, therefore no interaction and no possibility of getting sick. In contrast, the mice given the emulsifiers had bacteria residing 50% closer to the lining while observing many bacteria coming in contact with the lining. All of this was correlated with the reduced thickness of the gut mucus. They were also able to note measurable changes in the gut microbiota as well. So there were decreased levels of bacterioidals, which are associated with health, and there were increased levels of mucolytic bacteria, which literally means mucus-destroying bacteria. While the paper goes on to describe a link to emulsifier use and metabolic syndrome and inflammation, I'm afraid that strays from our topic today of microbiota, so I encourage you to check the show notes and give that article some time of day for some more interesting information of the additional negative effects emulsifiers can have on our body. So with these two pieces of literature in what is an ever-blooming field of research on gut microbiomes, I hope we've established that what will become widely recognized as processed foods diminish the good guys and increase some of the bad guys, all of which is not good news for us. So fear-mongering aside, let's get to the important part. What are we supposed to do about it? Well, the first solution might sound obvious and rather flippant. Stop eating processed foods. But as I alluded to earlier, that may not always be as straightforward as it seems. Some people may live in those food deserts that I mentioned. Others may fall prey to deceptive advertising such as, quote, organic food labeling. For example, that emulsifier that I mentioned that was put in the mice's water is known as carboxymethyl cellulose, a derivative from cellulose, which is what makes up plant cells. Because it comes from an organic plant, an organic source, i.e., plants, and I use the organic term in the chemistry sense, it is not incorrectly labeled as an organic food because it's a component that comes from a living thing that they pull out and do chemistry to. They can technically say that that is an organic substance, hence the organic label. So while you can't acquire it, air quotes, naturally, like you could acquire a stevia plant simply from plucking it or harvesting sap from a maple tree to make syrup, you might end up spending extra on foods labeled organic and still might be consuming the same demons that, that plague their inferiorly labeled brethren. So what's a realistic solution? Well, I hope you enjoy cooking from raw ingredients because that's about the safest way to avoid UPFs and some of their processed ingredients. It may not occur to people that even innocuous items such as salad dressing and ketchup contain emulsifiers and contain some of the processing downfalls as Twinkies and your favorite fast food guilty pleasure. So the only safe way to be sure is to cook from scratch. Another hot ticket item that has been floating around as a result of the increased attention to gut microflora is probiotics and prebiotics. To quickly distinguish, probiotics are things that contain live bacteria. Think yogurt, kefir, kombucha, etc. And prebiotics are things that contain food that the bacteria eat. Basically, your food, but typically recognized as high-fiber foods. 
As an aside, I'm convinced that the human race is obsessed with taking pills to change our condition. We have pills that make you poop, pills that keep you from pooping, pills that put gold flakes in your poop. Don't get me started. Many pills that solve various forms of maladies and others that simply claim that they solve maladies. So in the true spirit of being human, we've decided to we decided that taking pills to kill bacteria was too good, so now we're putting bacteria in pills to put the bacteria back. Because taking a pill to fix our pill problem doesn't sound like too much of a pill to swallow, am I right? So now we have probiotics and prebiotics. But are they any good, and are they even necessary? For starters, prebiotics, as we stated earlier, is just bacteria food. And the easiest thing is to just eat what the bacteria are already eating, and that's good old normal unprocessed food, particularly those higher in fiber. As far as probiotic supplements are concerned, the verdict is still out. There is evidence for good and bad. See the show notes at this timestamp. Particularly, we don't know if what we're getting is actually what's advertised since the supplement industry is largely unregulated. So I go for the sure thing and I just eat regular, healthy probiotic foods and avoid the supplements. Foods that have been fermented contain the bacteria that we consume anyways. We've just allowed the bacteria to flourish through the fermentation process first before putting them into our bodies. So they are rich in these cultures. Sauerkraut, kimchi, sriracha, kombucha are great examples. Personally, I'm on the fence with yogurt and kefir as while they are both milk products Milk in the U.S. is highly regulated and must undergo certain processing, for good or bad, before it can be used. So if you have your own cow at home, then your business is your business. But the vast majority of us Westerners fall subject to regulated processing milk with fun hormones and such that dairy cows are given. So we'll leave that argument for another time. So how does one go about DIY fermenting foods? Well, the Internet, is, as always, is a treasure trove of knowledge. Now, I'd strongly, strongly recommend watching a number of videos making the same food, like watching five different videos on how to make sauerkraut. That way you have an idea of what the general process is, and in case you get some weird outlier weirdo doing something potentially hazardous, you'll have other practiced individuals be able to use as a comparison to go, okay, well, they didn't do it, so maybe I shouldn't do that. But as a quick teaser on what's involved, let's go over all some that I've personally done and can attest to their process firsthand. Sauerkraut involves three ingredients, salt, cabbage, and a jar. Not a lot of room for processing or error there. There are ample guides online, so do your research first, as always, as getting started is easy, but the fermenting might take some attention and appropriate setup. Chop up your cabbage, mash it in a bowl, add salt, throw it in the jar. After a week of fermenting, voila, go longer if you like the taste. These are very reductive steps, and there is much more nuance for the fermentation process, like how to avoid getting mold and burping your jar, but that's literally all it takes. So if you can afford cabbage salt and you have jars, you can afford to start amending your gut flora. Now, kombucha has become a personal addiction of mine. This one may not be for the easily squeamish, as handling a scoby may strike many of you as a little yuck, but if you're a tea drinker, this one is so easy to do once you've acquired a SCOBY. A SCOBY is an acronym for a Symbiotic Community of Bacteria and Yeast, S-C-O-B-Y. So there's your microbiota right there. It's in the name. Now, most individuals recommend finding a, quote, reputable source to acquire a SCOBY. 
However, I was able to grow my own SCOBY from a store-bought kombucha. So if you have jars, sugar, and tea, then you can totally pull this off. And since I've already admitted to being partial to kombucha, I've even provided some lovely science-based evidence that drinking kombucha has beneficial effects for your body. See the show notes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that drinking one magical drink is going to fix all of your problems. However, it should not be discounted as one more useful, healthy lifestyle action that one can make to promote better health and wellness. Additionally, if you're a soda drinker, drinking kombucha can be a great substitution to appease that sipping addiction. Much like smokers trying to quit, find having something else in their mouth like gum, sunflower seeds, or toothpicks to be helpful, if you just feel like you need to constantly wet your palate and soda winds up being your crutch, try slotting some kombucha in instead. It does still have a semi-sweet taste. However, the level of sugar compared to a normal soda is much lower, so it's a nice step-down approach if you're trying to quit. If you slot kombucha in on the regular from the store, it can be expensive. Another reason why I'd recommend trying to make your own. It is insanely more cost-effective. I believe at some point during my weight loss series, I mentioned that if you want to look healthy, you have to live healthy and do healthy things. So preparing, cooking, and now fermenting your own food cuts a lot of the guesswork out of what am I putting in my body is actually healthy for me. As it pertains to gut flora, preparing your own food means you have to reestablish a healthy gut microbiome and continue to nurture it. Find yourself in a food desert, it may, you may need to get a little more creative. Ordering dry goods online and having them delivered might open a couple doors of opportunity. Tea and sugar are the only inputs you need to make kombucha, so tracking down a store that carries some kombucha so that you can grow your own SCOBY would be the final step. And I've seen kombucha in every major grocery in my area, so someone near you has to have something. You can order oats, nuts, many other dry goods that have decent fiber content for your prebiotics. All it takes is a little curiosity, and you might be surprised what all is actually available to you that your local convenience store may not carry. So, recap for the day. We learned that microbiota control a great many things in our body, and possibly more that we are not yet aware of, but we're learning new things every day. Two, we learn that ultra-processed foods can drastically change the landscape of the gut microbiome and almost in all negative ways. Three, we learn that while eating processed foods can ruin our gut flora, eating fermented and fibrous foods can repopulate and nourish the healthy gut flora. Four, we finally discussed a few strategies to go about preparing foods that we can slot into our lifestyle to help us enjoy the benefits of good microbiota. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I appreciate your interest in health and wellness. Remember, your curiosity is important to us, so send us your questions to info at primity.org. As always, strength comes in many forms, from within and without. So be strong to be useful. Take care.